Hello everyone. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday morning. I'm David Robertson. I haven't been on for a while. Good to see you. And I'm here with... Andy Alexander. Who I'm sure you are very familiar with by now. This week we have a really quite interesting interview that I've been looking forward to. It's uh, with Kurum Hassan. The title of the interview is The Critical Humanist Study of Islam, and maybe we'll unpick that in a minute. It builds off his book, The Muslim Speaks, from 2020 now, which uh, quite a few people brought to our attention, actually. So it's really great that, Andy, you were able to talk to him. Tell us a little bit about what you cover. In the, what do you mean by the critical humanist study of Islam? Yeah, so I had the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Hassan about his book, and he frames his approach as a critical humanist approach, one that engages critical theory and critical approaches to the study of religion, specifically the study of Islam, but also while recognizing just how messy and entangled so many of the categories that we use are. And he argues that this critical humanist approach is actually a more productive way of approaching the study of Islam because it allows us to engage issues of identity, of difference, of boundary formation without as he puts it, dehumanizing or depoliticizing Muslim voices with overly simplistic categorizations like moderate Muslim or extremist. So we cover a lot of different ideas in the course of this interview. And I feel like there's going to be a lot there for really anyone tuning in because the underlying concerns of difference, of identity, of knowledge production are prevalent I think, for the field more broadly. So I hope that the listeners will enjoy this episode as much as I did, because I had a wonderful time recording it. And it was a really thought-provoking conversation. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the idea of almost turning the camera around in this critical study and, and coming at the questions about religion, identity, worldview, and so on, but from non-Western perspectives and maybe Muslim perspectives particularly interesting because they, as you say, you know, they're so integral to dynamics of otherness and the idea of religion and as imagined in the West. And I could ask you a lot of questions, but I think maybe what we need to do is let's have a listen. Hello and welcome. I am Andy Alexander, and today I am very pleased to be joined by Dr. Karim Hassan. You pronounced my name so well. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Lehigh University, where he is also the Director of the Humanities Center. Dr. Hassan is the author of Islam as Critique, Syed Ahmad Khan, and the Challenge of Modernity, which was published with Bloomsbury in 2019. And he also has a chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Humanism in the Middle East, as well as a new article in Religion Compass titled Against Binary Thinking, Reconceptualizing the Political and the Study of Modern South Asian Islam. But today, we are here to talk about your recent book, The Muslim Speaks, which was published with Zed Books in 2020. Now, I believe this is your very first appearance at the Religious Studies Project. So welcome, and thank you so much for joining me here today. It is, yes. I've used the Religious Studies Project quite a bit in my classes and in other ways, So, but, but this is the first time I'm being recorded, so that's exciting. 
Well, I am very glad to have you here. And I'm also very happy to know that the podcast has been such a useful resource for you. That's really great to hear. So thank you. I would love to start off by asking you first a bit about the various approaches to Islamic studies and religious studies, right. particularly the critical study of Islam, study of Islam. Right. And how your work builds on and diverges from these approaches. Yeah, so Islam, the study of Islam is, is, as you know, quite fraught, you know, in the Western Academy, and for good reasons, both political, intellectual, and historical. So there have been sort of camps, let's just say, historically, in the current environment, there are certain camps that fall into what I would call a kind of apologia or sort of I think what Aaron Hughes calls normative Islam, which basically mm-hmm. sort of treats the sources of Islam as sacrosanct. And then there is a kind of, um, there isn't always a kind of critical distance between the scholarship and and the identity of Islam. And this has certainly become more prevalent in, in recent years with the influx of more Muslims. In, in Islamic scholarship. I mean, until the 70s, there were very few, but now there's all these newly minted PhDs and, and they're writing from very much from a, well, not from a sort of first person perspective in the sense of being Muslim, but, but clearly with a certain kind of normative angle. Then there's the much more longer standing approach, which uh, Edward Said famously called Orientalism in the negative. You know, so this Orientalist approach, which really thinks of Islam as an object of study very much vis-a-vis the Western experience, right, and and frames the study of Islam very much as a source of knowledge about something that has kind of relevance, political, intellectual, historical, for the West, right? So those those have been sort of the camps that I look at, and I think those camps also roughly map onto, although not always, onto what I call sort of the study of Islam as a kind of a, a sympathetic, you know, to Muslims, let's just say, right, and sort of, and and not so sympathetic, or critical of Muslims, right? That's also critical of the Muslim experience, critical of Muslim history, critical to what has happened to Islam in the last two hundred years. Of course, this is a, a, a gross simplification. I mean, there are there are lots of really wonderful ethnographics, you know, work on Islam that's been done. But as far as I'm concerned, these are the sort of the camps that I look at, right, in my work, because I find both of these camps to be deeply problematic for different reasons. You know, like in my book, I talk about the fact that there's a kind of a Islamophilia adjacent <laughs> type scholarship. Then there is the Islamophobia adjacent kind scholarship, right? And these both feed into public discourses that are similarly binary, right? Islam, religion of peace, hijacked by terrorists, or Islam, religion of violence. It's internally, essentially has a kind of, um, uh, you know, obstructionist essence vis-a-vis the West. So so those are the approaches that I sort of dealing with in the work. And my approach is, I would say, is a more of a humanist approach, right? Which is like a critical humanist approach, which says that you know, which makes the sort of drastic uh, proclamation that we're all human. Uh, and, you know, to quote Hannah Arendt, we're all similarly human because we're all differently human. That there is a kind of a unity in the diversity and the diversity in the unity, right? So the, an acknowledgement of the fact that as human beings living in the world and what is increasingly a common world, there are underlying bases for our participation in the human condition, right? But at the same time, our situatedness is also an aspect of a human being, you know, situatedness, whether it's culturally, intellectually, religiously, in whatever way. So I reject sort of both sort of these kind of more apologetic conceptions of Islam and more sort of critical conceptions of Islam or study of Islam uh, as being dehumanizing, right? In either case, these are dehumanizing 
impulses, right? You know, whether you dehumanize somebody as a friend or dehumanize somebody as an enemy or dehumanize somebody as being somehow radically different, radically similar. I, I, I don't like those approaches because I feel like they, they cut against my, my very base normative positions on what it means to be a human, what it means to be a Muslim, what it means to be an American, any of those identities. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about this critical humanist approach and the benefits that you see in this particular way of studying these issues and questions? Yeah. So so one of the things that I do in the book right off the bat from the very beginning is talk about how I, I, I call it critical Islam, right? Which is that in what important ways is the Islamic corpus intellectual corpus or a cultural corpus or historical corpus, in what important ways can we engage with that as Westerners? And I would think of myself at this point as a Westerner. In what important ways can we can we actually converse with, right? Critically converse with, with that corpus. Rather than thinking of that corpus of experience, of intellectual history and all that stuff as being either just another variation on our corpus Right, yeah. where we find where we where we excavate liberal democratic values in the Quran yeah, and, yeah. and and in Muslim thinkers, or as being so different as to be legible, as as being in a different language altogether, right? As having its own rules and grammars and stuff, as somehow like so obscure and peculiar that it's its own thing, right? So my my uh, constructive task that I t- do in my other book as well. Um, less so in this one, but more so in the other one, is to identify Islam as a source of critique. Right. Like Islamic writers, thinkers, intellectuals throughout history and certainly in the contemporary modern period. How have they engaged with the challenges of modernity? Like what kind of insights do they have coming from their particular situatedness? Right. Like what kinds of ideas have they explored? Like what kind of answers have they come up to the problematics of modernity? What kind of philosophical, ethical, political insights do they have? And to prefer a kind of conversation with yeah. these, not just in their provincial capacity as Muslims, but in their universal capacity as other human beings, right? So that in my work, I read Muhammad Iqbal the same way as, as I would read Hegel, right? Like it's, I don't, I, like I don't differentiate between the two as to one somehow being more provincial or less provincial or more this or more that. I'm just like, hey, these are all people, these are all folks, smart folks sometimes who are engaging with the human issues, right? And a real value in reading like that, especially the corpus, and I, and I make the point that this is no different really than, you know, critical race studies or feminist theory or erstwhile obscured domains of knowledge being pulled into a global public conversation, right? So Islam is, to me, like just another species of the domain of knowledge that has hitherto been obscured or been like put in a bin somewhere, right? And my sociological sort of normative point here is that we can't afford, like we can't afford as human beings in the world we're living in to silo off stuff, right? We have serious global problems, right? Yeah. And we're going to need all the freaking help we can get, right? And clearly a lot of these problems have been caused by the very provincial mindset that we have been preferring as being universalist, right? Yes. Like modern, you know, capitalist economics, you know, certain ways of sort of thinking about uh, identity, nationality, certain ways of of imagining community. Like these are all our, our particular, by our, I mean, Western. I will have to we keep saying that because I'm, my name is Khurmusan and people would like to put me in a, some kind of pigeonhole also. But, you know, I'm very much Westerner. So, so, in our capacity, we might not have the grammar, 
within our systems, right? Because our systems have, in fact, produced a lot of the problems that we're now dealing with. Muslims are what, like 25% of the world population, 1.8 billion people, rich history of culture, civilization, mm-hmm. intellect and stuff. You know, so we need, we, we need that information. We need it. We need, we need conversations with it. Yeah. You know, we don't need just affirmation of it or denial of it because that's what's happening usually. Absolutely. Yeah. You actually take up the issues of how we understand identity or nationalism in a really interesting way in this book. You frame it through this lens of discursive traps, and you name three of them as freedom, reason, and culture. Can you talk a little bit more about these these traps and the work that you understand them to do in these particular conversations? Yeah, great. So those are basically, I identify as three sort of domains of ways of talking about Islam and Muslims, right? There's freedom mm-hmm. talk, there's reason talk, there's culture talk. I mean, the, the, the names are kind of arbitrary. I mean, I, the freedom talk is just, you know, I was just being cute a little bit. But, but it's really, you know, it's really about thinking of Islam as a form of doing politics or talking about Islam as a form of doing politics, right? And is that form of doing politics compatible with uh, Western modern forms of doing politics, right? So it's basically a compatibility discourse or a commensurability discourse, right? And it usually turns into a kind of binary conversation that never ends because it it really can't end because it traps you in this dyad where on the one side you have figures from all across the political spectrum, from neoconservatives to certain liberals to Muslims themselves, right, who say, hey, you know, Islam is totally compatible with Western modernity. Like, we are compatible with democracy. We are compatible with secularism. It can take the light form, which basically says, oh, Muslims will get there. They're just a little behind. Or it can take the hard form, like neoconservative hawks. We're like, oh, they're slumbering. We need to intervene and interrupt them to get them to hurry up, right? So there's that camp, which makes us strange bedfellows, like like I say in the book. And then the other camp also makes us strange bedfellows. This is folks like the multi-culti crowd, which which is very sympathetic to Muslims, but 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 as like a different species, right? That we need right. to preserve somehow, right? There are the ecological sort of metaphors of like, you know, we need to preserve a species for the sake of the species. It's all oh, look how different it is and how interesting it is. And yet it's not, yeah. it's not the same as us. But that camp also includes like, you know, folks like Sam Huntington and Clash of civilizations mm-hmm. people who are like, yeah, Islam is totally different and it's totally dangerous. And we must, uh, I think Huntington famously said, Islam has bloody borders. Right. Yeah. So, so that camp. So, so freedom talk, what, I, what I'm calling freedom talk is a way of talking about Islam that mostly aligns with one of these two discursive ways of thinking about what Islam is and thinking about it almost entirely with reference to the West, mm-hmm. right? Either compatible or incompatible either commensurable or incommensurable, and almost entirely sort of appropriating it into an internal conversation that Westerners are having with themselves for the most part, right? And I think it's very important to point out, I think this is something that is, is, is I think, important for me to make clear. Muslims themselves also take part in this, this freedom talk, right? Muslims here, Muslims elsewhere, right? Freedom talk is sort of a global public discursive architecture that has been sort of sanctified by Western power, but it is entirely not just 
the way certain Westerners talk about this, right? So this way of talking about Islam is now sort of operating everywhere to a certain extent. And to me, that's deeply, well, it's deeply problematic because it's just, you know, it's just, it's, it's like I said earlier, it's dehumanizing to a certain extent. But it also then fundamentally does not really account for the reality of of Muslims, right, as they really are out there in the world, right? Like, that's the thing is like, there is, there is something to be, you know, even despite our like postmodern predicament, there is something like, Call the truth out there, you know. Like there, there's, there's there's truth about a particular intellectual, cultural systems, religious systems, and we as scholars should be attentive to that rather than sort of you know getting caught up in these side projects, uh, which really ultimately don't do justice to our subjects. One thing that struck me about your book is how you critically engage individual experiences in your analysis. And it strikes me as diverging somewhat with popular discourses about experience in the field of religious studies. And I wonder if you could speak to that move that you've made a little and how you understand this idea of experience. I think experience is, is you know, it's, it's, very, it's, it's another very fraught uh, category in, yeah. in the study of religion. What exactly is experience? What is the value of experience? I think experience, to a certain extent, to me, is uh, there are many different ways of thinking about it, right? Like there, there is the particular term that a lot of academia took with the cultural turn, which was, which was this idea that experience is the synodoshef, like it is it, the lodestar, right? Like we, if we want to understand a particular phenomena, we have to attend to the experience of those experiencing it. And this has led, I think, in, in the academy to, uh, and, I, 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 and I want to make sure I would say this uh, properly and appropriately. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm certainly not saying that you know, the idea that Muslims should study Muslims or Christians should study Christians, women should study women, right? Like there's something about your own personal experience that can give you special access to to the truth about a particular object of investigation that would otherwise not be available. And in fact, if you, in fact, cross over, then there would be some problems, right? Or that you would not be able to get to the truth. And this is something I was talking with Aaron Hughes about also, which is like this idea of like mysticism, yeah? that, that there is a kind of mystical access that experience gives you to the truth about the identity within which you are sort of situated. And I personally, I mean, I've, while I'm, I'm certainly not saying that that's not uh, a viable way of, of getting at the truth, uh, but it's a viable way of getting at one kind of truth. Right. And one of the ways in which it can be detrimental is that that particular assertion that there is some kind of a special access based on identity can lead to other ways of getting at the truth being sort of sidelined. Because there are other truths too, right? I mean, we're right. not living in a single truth kind of situation here. So certainly, I think, for example, the exposition of women's experience in scholarship is very useful, very important. But it's not the case that women should only study women and men should only study men, right? Because as though there is some, some kind of a block there. So one of the things that I'm doing in this book very much so, I think, is, is, is to position myself not as an insider anywhere. I'm not claiming special access to the truth as a Muslim. I'm certainly not claiming full access to the truth as, as somebody who lives in the West and was trained in the Western Academy. I'm saying that I am providing the, the particular kind of gaze that is associated with my particular expertise and my mm-hmm. particular experience. Because experience 
as you said earlier, like experience informs everything we do. So I'm not suggesting that scholarship should be like, you know, in the old sense, like objective and neutral right. and like standing outside and looking, you know, that's, that's very sort of early West Nightingale yeah. to scholarship. So I certainly, I, I, I reject that because I feel like that's just stupid. Yeah. Not true. But I also don't think that this kind of a funneling of, of all truth to a kind of direct access to something is particularly useful. And I think this book was very difficult to write because of that, you know, because in many ways, like I didn't want to call it The Muslim Speaks. Uh, because it makes it sound like I'm speaking. I'm, I'm not the Muslim in this book, right? <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to say that, like, my first sentence I wanted to be, like, I am not the Muslim in this book. And the, and the <laughs> publisher was like, what are you talking about? I wanted to call it the Muslim the Muslim questions. Uh, not the Muslim question, and not with a question mark, but the Muslim questions. It can be mm-hmm. both sort of the Muslim asking a question or the question of Islam, right? That keeps coming up in the book over and over again. But yeah. I ran into trouble with the, the whole question uh, form- formulation, which has a fraught history in and of itself yes. in the West. So, so that's what... That's what I would say about experience. For example, like I think going to your earlier question about the different discursive traps, another trap that I've identified is called what I call the reason, the reason talk. In an earlier iteration, it was called science talk. And it's very much about the association of of the idea of reason with one particular subjective experience of rationality, Mm -hmm. like universal reason as being the repository of one particular cultural intellectual iteration of rationality, especially in the 19th century, we're going earlier also, which is where the whole objective comes from, like the idea of objective scholarship, because it's based on universal reason. So I certainly am not denying the idea that there are reasons and rationalities, right? And I'm also not denying the idea that there are certain aspects of reason and rationality that are very much could be and have been shared across cultural, geographic, historical context. But the very particular one that we're dealing with when it comes to Islam is a kind of story about religion in the West, which is the story of the overcoming of religion and the effulgence of reason as being an aspect of that story, right? That story that there is a reformation and there's enlightenment and there is secularism, right? You know, that there's a kind of a broad kind of arc of the story that tells you how religion can be tamed into reason. It's a very particular story, but we hear this story constantly being invoked when it comes to Islam, right? Like you hear it constantly being invoked about, oh, Islam needs a reformation and Islam needs a Martin Luther. When are the Muslims going to have the enlightenment? Not just an enlightenment, but the enlightenment, like Uh, like literally arresting it to a very particular grooves of history, like the grooves of history already there. You you just kind of Islam has to walk these grooves. And that's, that's a prime example of where a particular set of experiences located in a particular cultural system have become the standard by which other, like other systems, which are not totally different, not totally the same, but other systems are being evaluated. And again, like what that one is just plain boring. Like, why would you just want everybody to follow the same exact path? Like, it just seems like human beings just, will, just don't do that. But two, it's impossible, right? Like, so... There, there is a kind of a sense that by these standards, Muslims are always going to be, be behind. It's like the vanishing contemporary is constantly shifting and moving. Yeah. Like the standard, so to say. Like 20 years ago, it was all oh, d- democracy, secularism. Now it's also like, hey, you, you, you can't have homophobia. Now that I want homophobia, I'm saying is that as the cultural system develops in the West, it's, it's the p- productions of this particular cultural system that become sort of the new standards for everybody else, including sort of Muslims. 
here and elsewhere. And so you get into, instead of sort of actually engaging with Islam as a causal system, engaging with Islamic conceptions, which are not, by the way, uniform, Islamic conception of rationality, reason, its relationship to religion, how a religion and rationality relate, all those kind of interesting intellectual conversations one, one can have. Instead, one has this, these kind of like really vacuous conversations about when when Islam be, have a reformation. Islam, Islam needs a reformation now, right? Yeah, because it actually becomes a way of managing and governing difference rather than actually engaging it Absolutely. in a real, scare quotes, real <laughs> way. <laughs> because now these marginalized groups have to conform to a very particular understanding of experience so that it is then legible to the governing group, majority group. Totally true. Absolutely true. And and it's really, at the end of the day, the question then becomes, you know, as I, as I ask my students, like, when were the good old days? You know, people call it when good old days. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. exactly? 1949, some barbecue on July 4th, like in Nebraska? I don't know. So this idea that you, that, that there is some, some there there that others have to adapt to, right? Exactly. It's not, there, there's no there there so to say, which is again, not to make it totally postmodern and say, oh, there's nothing there. There's no there, there ever, ever, you know, these are all various discourses about commensurability and adaptability and that rely on certain tropes about the meaning of the West, right? The West, another very fraught term about what the meaning of the West is and what its relationship is to the meaning of Islam. Already implied is that Islam and the West are somehow like totally lockboxed out of each other. It implies that the West is like a thing, you know, like, like you can actually identify yeah. what it is, right? It can, it says you, Islam is a thing that you can identify. And as I, as I talk about in my book, the idea of the West and the idea of the Muslim world are, as things is totally uh, modern. I think I trace like this, the language of the West really begins to emerge in the 19th century, late 19th century, and really only becomes codified post-World War II as the West versus yeah. the East, right? Same thing with the Muslim world, right? Like the idea of a Muslim world that has kind of a tangible character and architecture and structure where Muslims are supposed to care about each other as Muslims is also a 19th century phenomenon where the Muslim world is first identified by Western scholars as the Muslim world, right? Right. Because then you can talk about the decline of the Muslim world, what happened to the Muslim world, who's in the Muslim world, right? Like all of these questions about the Muslim world from Morocco to, to Indonesia, to China, to the US, right? Like suddenly all of these people are part of this thing called the Muslim world, just like they're part of this thing called the West. And I, in the book, I trace like sort of the co-production of these two categories very much in conversation with each other in the 19th and 20th centuries. I call the ch- chapter Mirror Mirror because it's like a, it's, it's, both a kind of mirroring resonance that's producing these categories, essentialized categories. But it's also about, you know, like a, a kind of tongue-in-cheek thing to mirror mirror on the wall, who's the fairest them of all, right? Like, and it's yeah. each of them are basically seeing themselves as being sort of the fairest. And so that mirror resonance by which these conceptual categories get created and then get reaffirmed and uh, confirmed is a really important aspect of where we are today in the discourse about Islam. And, you know, I, I could write that book. I, I don't think I want to, but but I could write a, the book like this, like the, the Westerner Speaks, where I look at all of the stereotypes and all of the ways in which Muslims, talk, you know, around the world talk about the West. Right. And they caricature the West and they create the kinds of, you know, doubling binaries for the West. Right. So in many ways, these discourses of the Western Muslim are really mirrored resonances. And that is the interesting part to me. Not so much that they're true or not, or not so much that they like, what is the work that they're doing in affirming these kinds of essentialized identities? 
Yeah, and they really are co-constitutive in many ways, especially with regard to Islamophobia, which is not something that you talk a great deal about, but is certainly something that is informing part of this conversation. And you discuss wanting to repoliticize rather than depoliticize Muslim voices. Can you speak a little bit more about this move that you're making and how you understand this to work? Yeah, so uh, Islamophobia, right? I'm not a scholar of Islamophobia. I'm very uh, self-consciously so, right? Which is not to say that I'm not I'm saying that there's no Islamophobia and that it's not a problem. I mean, clearly it's a problem, right? Uh, you know, just like anti-Semitism is a problem, you know, just like misogyny is a problem. These are all problems. Islamophobia, I think, is mentioned maybe once in the entire book because I wanted to make it clear that this is not a book about Islamophobia. And the reason being that I think Islamophobia is a particular kind of attitude towards Muslims, right? That certainly informs other things. But really the the big problem that I identify in the book is, is not so much a kind of fear of Muslims, but rather kind of depoliticization of the of the Muslim voice, so to say, right? And the depoliticization taking the form where the Muslim is, is either asked to affirm pre-existing values, virtues, cultural cultures, or to reject either friend or foe, not a critic. And to me, like following on an ages-old Aristotelian schema, the critic position is the fundamentally human position. Because for Aristotle, as for with Hannah Arendt, and I know I'm, 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 I'm totally showing my uh, <laughs> like very old-fashioned, uh, you know, modernist, uh, you know, inclinations, which have not been pop- which have not been fashionable since the 1950s. But, but the idea that that it's 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 talking to each other about the good life, right, in the open agora, in the polis, that is what fundamentally is human about it about us, right? Everything else is is kind of versions of being an animal, like eating, sleeping, having sex, reproduction, making sure we have enough money, which is basically just acorn, right? Like squirrels collect acorn, we collect, you know, <laughs> stuff. You know what I mean? It's so the, yeah. the, everything else is is variations in our animal thing, right? The one thing that makes us human is in fact one that we ask the question of our humanity to ourselves, but also to others. And then we then we are political creatures, right? Meaning that we 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 discuss with each other, we talk to each other about what is the meaning of the good life. Like, what is the good life? To use Aristotle's language, right? So that's what fundamentally makes us human, right? So politics, for me, in this conception, is precisely the mechanism by which humans in critical engagement with others continue to enact their humanity, right? So humanity, being human is a verb, it's something you do. So when Muslims are either turned into their total friends, like you're just like us, or into foes, it's like, oh, we can't talk. This is a kind of dehumanizing, depoliticizing move. And it's not just made by by Westerners, it can be made by Muslims themselves, vis-a-vis the West, vis-a-vis each other, right? When you sort of either affirm or, or reject. So my reading of the situation is that this this constant attempts to affirm, reject, affirm, reject, affirm, reject, in fact, produces a lot of the pathologies that are now evident between between these categories of the West and, and the Muslim world. And in fact, can explain a lot of why, because I don't consider, for example, you know, the Al-Qaeda sort of blowing up the World Trade Center politics, that, that's also like a total rejection. That's not talking yeah. to somebody about like, yeah. well, what is a good life? That's like saying, no, I just kill you. Like an animal is hungry, animal goes and kills and eats, right? Those are not human kinds of activities, right? So what I'm saying is that in, in order for the 
with the clear and obvious problematics that are operating in, in these broken relationships, what you need is for the Muslim voice to be re-politicized, right? For Muslims to be, be able to participate in the global public sphere through a kind of critical engagement with the issues and problems at hand, you know, with other human beings, be they from America or Nigeria or Russia, whatever, right? Like, and I think that repoliticization will, in fact, both be uh, constructive in terms of, like, you know, providing more you know, interesting voices into our conversations, but it's also an acknowledgement of our shared humanity, right? Like the fact that we were all human in some ways, right? So that's why Islamophobia to me is, let me put it this way, Islamophilia is just as much a problem for me as Islamophobia when it comes to this question. Now, obviously, I'd rather take somebody who's Islamophilic, you know, than Islamophobic yeah. <laughs> and like shoots uh, Muslims down rather than hugs them. So it's on, on that level, clearly, I'm not equating the two. But on an intellectual level or in a level of, of at a humanistic level, they're both different ways of dehumanizing Muslims uh, by depolarizing them. And so my, yeah. my, you know, work, you know, for the most part, is just, con I'm constantly sort of, engage with this question of like the humans of humanity is very important, right? And, and because if you, if you, if you take out the humanity, if you don't engage with humanity and, you know, like a, the conclusion I call a more mundi, which is like love of the world, right? Like that there have, we have to cultivate a certain kind of love of the world, the world that be, that the only place in the universe that we can all call home, right? Like this is the only place, right? Right. And we share it. Yeah. So, so that's to me, like, I mean, I get emotional with this stuff because I mean, love is very love of the world, love of each other, empathy, critical engagement doesn't mean you lack empathy. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It means that you actually engage with, with each other in full knowledge and acknowledgement of the other person's humanity. Not saying that you will always agree, but you, you must come at it from that angle. And I see so little of it in the world we live in today, and especially when it comes to Muslims. You're absolutely right. And I think this nicely demonstrates what we were talking about earlier with the discursive traps and the sort of binaries that we end up in, where something can only be this or that. And also thinking back to this idea of experience and that it can only be one type of truth when, in fact, our experiences are entirely and necessarily social. Right. And entirely based on our engagement with others. Experiences aren't things that just happen to us privately, removed from a social or public sphere. That's such a good way of putting it, Andy. That's such a great way of putting it. Yeah, they're intersubjective. Experience is always intersubjective, right? Experience is not the idea. This is a very Protestant idea. It's not experiences like lodged in your, mm -hmm. in inside your your brain. It's like belief state or propositional, you know, propositional statements and stuff. I mean, that's just utter nonsense because, well, it's, it's just not true. Like clearly, yeah. our own experience tells us it's not true. Yeah. But also, like it's uh, suppose we suppose we were to accept that that there was something like that, right? It would be useless. It, it would have no relevance right, to anything. Yeah, I mean, I completely, absolutely agree. And also, I think it makes sense because intersubjective experiences, so our experience as being sort of a, a quality of our sociality uh, rather than a quality of our uh, individual minds or something, right, is a very mm -hmm. different way of approaching it, right? Because, I mean, it's to me, like, whether what you are thinking, Andy, or what, what your dog is thinking, they're equally obscure to me. Yeah, because it's only based on what we can share with one another. Exactly. 
But even if you share something, I can't know it. Like I can't experience it, right? So Yeah, exactly. Because you can't read my mind, yeah. I can't read yours, and I certainly can't read my dogs, though I'm not sure that I would want yeah. to. And so it really is all interpretation at that point, because anything that we even try to convey is not the experience itself. It's just a redescription of our interpretation of an event. But like, see, this is the thing about, like, I think in many ways, what goes on with in the discourse on Islam is a lot of reading minds, right? It's a, it's a lot of like, well, this yeah. is the essence of Islam, or this is what Muslims really are like. They're either like all super peaceful or they're all moderate. I, I, I don't understand the term moderate Muslim. I've never quite understood what exactly is a moderate, moderate, moderate you know, with, with, with what, like, Mm-mm. they don't the ones who don't eat too much sugar or like, like what are they what are they moderating like where is where is the moderation coming from like what are the standards by which anyways the point being that these kind of ideas about moderate muslim peaceful muslim violent muslim and these are just all like suppositions about internal states of mind and that's really not the purview yeah, maybe neuroscientists, I mean, they just make like, you know, images and stuff. They don't really know. Partly the aspiration for this book is also like to expand the scope, right? Like to to start talking more sort of about humans. So that, that's what I'm really interested in. Like I'm really super interested in human beings, right? That That's my that's my real interest. I wrote this because of a particular personal experience. Because after 9-11, I was looking around like, what is happening? Like there, there's suddenly these two camps are emerging and I don't understand why, like, because... Well, I understand why, but I was very deeply disturbed by it, right? About this emergence of this kind of like binary thinking. And then I realized mm-hmm. after doing a lot of study that this is not new. Like this has been going on for at least 200 years. And like this way of, of talking about Islam, whether here or in the Muslim world, quote, unquote, are very sedimented. They have followed very particular kind of intellectual, historical, political, economic reasons that are there for why this has sustained itself for so long. Like Said talks about this very interestingly. Orientalism is like, you know, this Orientalism is not is not a fiction. It's not a lie. If it was just a lie, it'd be easy to adjudicate. But he says, no, anything that has persisted, any way of thinking about the world that has persisted for now close to 200 years, we cannot think of it as a as a lie. We cannot refute it as a lie. We have to fully engage with, well, what are the processes by which this way of thinking and writing and talking uh, sustains itself? And what are the parameters of, of intervention, right? Because just, just, just being like, oh, that's not true. You know, that's not, that, that's not, because it's, because in some ways it is intersubjectively true. Yeah, I think you're right. But now I also realize that we are starting to run out of time. So before we go, can you give us a sense of what projects you are working on and what you have on the horizon? Yeah, so there are two projects. Well, there are actually three, but I'll just talk about the two. Because <laughs> the, the, well, the third one is like, really a pipe dream. The third one is called uh, Love as a Political Idea, where I get to be like all touchy-feely and stuff, you know, and like, and really delve into the works of people like Mohammed Iqbal and Gandhi and Martin Buber, Dorothy Day, Hannah Arendt, Reinhold Niebuhr, like just folks who have really thought seriously about the idea of love as a political idea. So whether that's that's in a very amorphous state. Well, the two that are in greatest stages of development, the first one is called Islam and the Disciplines, uh, how the study of Islam has shaped the Western Academy. And so that's going to be an edited volume. And this really is about how at various times in the history of the Western Academy, the study of Islam has really shaped 
theoretical mode of studying other things. You know, going back to the 19th century, the study of Islam becomes basically the study of religion. Like how you study Islam then affects how you study religion itself. It also is very important in, in Ernest Renan's so formulation of, of the Semite, which then leads to the very category of the Semite, which then leads to the category of anti-Semitism, all that stuff, right? There's that. But there's also folks like Wilfred Cantwell Smith. People don't know he was an Islamicist. You know, he started off as an Islamicist before he made his theoretical contributions to the study of, of religion as such. Clifford Geertz started off working mm-hmm. in Morocco and Indonesia and Malaysia, places like that, right? A lot of his insights about thick description, about what culture is, are really very much rooted in the study of Islam. Edward Said, obviously, I mean, he's not an Islamicist, but his particular discussion of Orientalism has huge impact on the on on God knows how many fields, right? So folks like that, right? So what I wanna what I wanna do is gather together like interesting scholars uh, to talk about that. The other book project that I'm working on is it's called Islam in the Negative: The Construction of political theologies in the image of Islam. And for this one, I basically will take the model I used for the Muslim Speaks and try and apply it in several other places in the world. Like in India, there is this Hindu nationalism, Hindutva, that's culturally and politically, intellectually really being sort of made in the image of what Hindutva imagines as the Muslim. And this dialectic, much like what we see in the West and Islam, is happening there too. You see similar Variations of this in places like Israel-Palestine, you see variations of it in uh, the French conceptions of laïcité. Like laïcité, rather than being a positive project of constructive secularism, is very quickly turning it down into like, like whatever Muslims are yeah. doing, that's wrong. And we will shape yeah. our own understanding of our polity in response to that. So those are sort of the two projects that are in the works and a third that I'm sort of just dreaming of doing at some point in the future. Wow, that sounds excellent. And we'll definitely have to keep an eye out for it. And hopefully we will be able to have you back here at the RSP when those come out so we can chat a little bit more. Great. Yes. And thank you so much for being here today. It has been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you. Thank you so much, Andy. I really enjoyed it too. I was really glad to be here uh, at uh, RSP. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for that interview, Andy. Really, really interesting stuff. You know, I'm listening to that. It makes me think we might be done with orientalization, but orientalization isn't done with us. And I think there's maybe we could put this into a bigger framework where we've moved past the stage of deconstruction where it's just about saying things don't exist. And actually, you know, as he says, even ideas that are imaginary still have impact and influence the way people see themselves and live. So you can really put this into a bigger trajectory of where the study of religion is heading. That might give me a rather tenuous segue into talking about where the Religious Studies Project is going. Andy, how can people follow the project? Well, if you have enjoyed this episode, please head over to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com where you can find a transcript of this episode. Also, be sure to head over to social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please let us know what you thought of the episode. Leave us a note in the comments. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions. Liking our posts, leaving comments, sharing them, giving us ratings. These are really good ways of supporting the project. If you're like a student or whatever, if you could afford to, though, we would really appreciate a couple of 
quid, a couple of dollars, any other currency, we'll take anything um, to our Patreon account. Or actually, there's a link on the web page where you can make a direct uh, one-off contribution. We don't take any of the money. The money all goes to keeping this project going, making sure it's free for students coming up. It's a really good way of giving back. If you've used our material, say, in teaching, or if you've used it while working on a paper or whatever, give a little bit back. It allows us to pay our volunteers to transcribe, to do their interviews, to keep the equipment running at a high degree of professionalism to which you have become accustomed. Be sure to tune in next week. We have an excellent discussion from a variety of professors in the UK who are talking about spiritual abuse in religion. So be sure to tune in for that excellent episode. You won't want to miss that. And until next time, all that's left to say is... Thanks thanks for for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartasius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.